Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. One Samuel twenty-two, verses one to three, New International Version. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress, or in debt, or discontented, gathered around him, and he became their commander. About four hundred men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab. Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you, until I learn what God will do for me? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About four hundred men were with him. From there. David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, "Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me?" Wow, wasn't that an amazing time? It was just—I still feel myself like my heart's going a little bit fast after that. Baptisms again, wonderful! What great testimonies! Well, hi, my name is Howard. It's my privilege to be one of the leaders of Westminster Chapel. And we are so thankful that you're here for this special baptism service. We really want you to feel so welcome, so, so welcome, that you, you feel like you've had some kind of experience with one of the most welcoming, maybe communities that you've come across. Um, that's because we're so aware of, frankly, kind of moments in life where you just feel so uncomfortable. I mean, maybe actually you're here today and you've you kind of felt a little bit Awkward. I've not sung in a in a kind of church. It's a bit strange. Maybe you've not been in a church uh, before, um, and you're feeling awkward, uncomfortable. Maybe though, it's more than that. You, you find in life that you just feel like you don't quite fit. There are moments with just just discomfort and, and general awkwardness. So I, I have these a lot. So I thought I would share one of my stories with you just to make you feel more at home. And it's from a time when I was qualifying to become a barrister. And basically, when you become a barrister, you have to do some dining sessions um, in order to become a courtroom lawyer. And you have to join an inn, not a place where you stay overnight, but it's an inn of court and they call you to the, to the bar. Um, and basically these places, you can choose one of four um, and they have these amazing halls like Harry Potter style halls, a bit like this one. Actually, um, the one I joined was was even bigger than that. It's really imposing. It's got like this double vaulted ceiling and wooden panels and around it like crests of famous family members and seemingly impressive people. And they have this high table at the front, which is actually raised higher than everybody else in the room. And they've got these long tables down like that. There were more in the one I was in where you sit facing other people. Now, I did not go to this kind of a school growing up. I'm not a Hogwarts boy, unfortunately. Um, I'm a state-educated guy. Um, and my family did not eat in places like this. So when you're going to dine there, I'm like, I feel really uncomfortable. It doesn't help that when you go in, in order to be allowed in, you have to wear a robe as well. That's a bit weird. And then they sit you down in something called a mess. 
Um, now, for me, that's like, why are you sitting me in a mess? I don't want to sit in a mess. That's not nice, is it? But it turns out a mess is actually a group of four people, uh, and they divide you up on these tables into groups of four, and you are not allowed to talk to anybody outside of your mess, your group of four. Even if the person to the other side of you, like you know really well, and it's kind of rude to snub them for the entire meal, you are not allowed to talk with them. Now, I won't get into the crazy amount of cutlery that you're being presented with and the kind of food that you're being served so much. Needless to say that there was some wonderful port at the end, which was a lovely surprise. But the weirdest thing for me was when a friend of mine tried to get up out of his seat whilst the, the meal is going on to make his way out of the room to go to the facilities, to use the toilet. Um, as he is going out to do that, a security guard in a black suit comes and gently escorts him back to his seat And we discover in this moment that you're not allowed to leave the room without permission from the high table until they finished eating. They will not give permission. Now, I did not need the toilet until I found that out. And suddenly there's this moment where you're like, I feel like I need to escape from this room. And obviously somebody else did and was more courageous than me. So they decided they were going to have a go. So they got out, out of their seat and they walked Olympic style. You know sort of how they do. Sort of like that, backwards and forwards, really fast to the exit. And sure enough, you've got, with all the decorum of wearing a gown, this guy going as fast as he can, walking, because he doesn't want to run, that would be making a scene. And then the security guard chasing after him. He's an expert fast walker, of course. And he gets there before the guy gets out and sits him down. This is so bizarre, isn't it? So I am there instinctively dipping my bread, my crusty bit of bread, into my soup, eating it, making a right old mess, looking around the room, thinking gosh, no one else is eating like this in this room, wondering, like, I just don't fit in. Have I made the most terrible career choice ever? I just don't fit in this place. I feel so uncomfortable. I'm, I'm not, I don't feel like I belong here. Now, I'm sure you have your equivalent stories in different settings where that's happened to you, right? And it can be funny for some moments, but it's not funny when that's your kind of primary disposition in life. And you feel like you don't fit, you don't belong, but... You don't feel like there's a place for you in society itself at, at all. came across a more painful illustration of this recently. I was reading a report uh, from Deloitte, June 2021 reports, very recent, and they are tracking um, the younger generations, millennials, Generation Z uh, coming up behind them, and the very disturbing kind of increases in stress and anxiety that they are, they are experiencing Um, at the moment that's been heightened by the pandemic. And the fact that really stood out to me was that 60%, nearly 60% of those struggling with anxiety and stress don't feel safe to talk about it with their leader, their line manager at work. They have to hide it because they wouldn't fit in otherwise. They've got to pretend. They can't be real. I think people are burnt out bruised and battered by trying to live the rat race life and they're looking for something better. I wonder if you're here in the room and that's you. Or you're watching online and that, that's you. So many people are seeing, maybe experiencing a sense of discontent with politicians who seem to be in it for themselves, not listening to people, not serving the people that they're, they're meant to be serving. So, so people don't feel like they belong anymore. They're not being heard. They don't have a voice. 
They can't be honest and real in their workplace. Hey, they feel like they're not even welcome in their neighborhood because of the color of their skin or, or the way they dress or the accent they speak with or their education and background and all of that. And I think deep inside every person, whether they give voice to it or not, is the question, is there a place for me? Is there somewhere where I might belong and I'll be accepted just as I am? Now you're in a church building and you're you're watching our church service online and I'm a church pastor so I'm obviously going to answer that question with a loud resounding, yes, it's the church, of course it's the church. And I'm aware actually as well within that of all the many failings of the church where we've got it wrong, where people have soured the reputation of, of Christianity, where people claim to do things in the name of Jesus, and actually they've been doing it in the name of their self and their own selfish self-interest. I'm aware of that, and that's why I believe that we must go back to the original, the uncorrupted, glorious blueprint that God gave for what church, local church, was meant to be like without all of the human errors and mistakes that, that you see that kind of distort it and, and obscure the truth from, from view. So I want to do that by asking a question today. And that, that question is, why on earth would anybody become a Christian in the first three centuries? Why on earth would anybody become a Christian in the first three centuries? Well, let me start by saying a lot of people did become Christians. Huge numbers, in fact. Historians, Christian and non, talk about the remarkable, almost explosive growth of Christianity coming out of nowhere overnight. Um, There's a professor of sociology called Rodney Stark. He's kind of searched this out. He studies it. He's sort of obsessed by the subject, really. I don't think he's yet a believer, but some of the comments that he makes are really interesting because he's just, how did this happen? How did this phenomena take place? And he says that only one in 1,000 religious belief systems would grow to have 100,000 adherents and last last for a century. So he's saying straight away, what happened with the Christian faith is unbelievably unlikely. And by his own numbers, he says Christianity grew from just a few hundred followers to by the year 250 AD to 1.17 million followers. That at the time was a massive number. Today, if you look at Wikipedia, something like 2.38 billion people in the world would identify as being a Christian. That's just today. That's the year 2021. Forget how many that is through the last 2,000 years. So we've got huge numbers did this. But also, it's not just the numbers who did it, but the diversity that's really quite shocking. That this wasn't a particular belief system just for the poor or for the rich or for men or for women like that. It was just for everybody. There's a, a, a guy called Pliny the Younger. Uh, you can see him on the screen. and He was no friend to Christianity. He actually killed quite a lot of Christians. He's a, a Roman. Um, and uh, he's writing in the year 112 AD. He's a, a governor of a place called Bithynia. Um, and he says this in his writings. Many talking about the Christians, many of all ages, of every rank, and also both sexes. Phenomenally diverse movement, huge numbers of people. But, but why? Why would you do that? Because it's very well documented. It's pretty much an accepted fact that to become a Christian back then 
was a dangerous decision to make. You would expose yourself to ridicule, disdain, exclusion, being ostracized. Hey, you probably lose your job. <laughs> Kinds of career prospects just went down the tubes if you became a Christian. Maybe even your marriage would be in trouble if the other person didn't become a believer. They might just throw you out because they didn't like Christians back then. You might experience physical abuse. You may even be martyred if you didn't recant your faith. So why? <laughs> Why on earth were so many and such diverse people becoming Christians? Well, I think it's because to them, the benefits outweighed the costs. The benefits of becoming a believer outweighed even though those costs were great. What were the benefits? Some of the benefits. Let me give you three. Number one, a relationship with a personal loving God. Back then, people had no concept of that. Their worship for their God was a transactional relationship, a sort of superstition. I want to get this from so-and-so. But here was a God who came in human flesh to reveal himself, to show you what he was like. Here was a God who didn't simply worship, but you loved, and who loved you. The second thing is eternal life. The greatest problem facing the human race, death, that we will all die. And at the heart of the Christian faith is a risen, victorious saviour who himself experiences death, paying the penalty of sin, which is death, but is raised to life and appears to many, many witnesses so convincingly that they're willing to die for him, that they believe he's God and he's conquered the grave. And then if you met those people in the first centuries... Imagine the testimony. I mean, you've, you've heard testimonies today and you would find it hard to go and argue with, you're wrong. Jenny Driver, you're wrong. That didn't happen to you. <laughs> They'd be like, what? <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? These guys would be saying, it'd be so real, so authentic. I saw. You don't understand. I saw him dead and I saw him alive. The third thing is accepting community. This third benefit. But it's more than community. It's a family that love you, that accept you, regardless of the color of your skin, your IQ, your experience, whatever you may have done in the past and all of that, that they, they love you. Whatever your rank, whether you're a senator or a slave, you are accepted. You are welcomed into this loving family. There is a sense of equality within this community that was unheard of previously in the society around. It was radical. Utterly radical. To help me try and get this point across, I'm going to refer to Tom Holland's book. He's an award-winning historian. As I understand it, he's not yet a Christian, but he gets ever closer the more he studies the history, it would seem, of Christianity. And here's a book called Dominion where he writes about it, highly researched book. He says this, that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not a remotely self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it to campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality. However, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle, as Nietzsche had so contemptuously pointed out, lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. The church is meant to be the most accepting place on earth. Where does that come from? Where does this loving behavior come from? It comes from the beliefs 
that then drive the outworking of that behavior in the community. And here's two essential ones. Number one, that every human being is made in the image of God. Therefore, they have dignity. They have worth. They must be loved, regardless of what they look like to you or where they come from. They are made in the image and likeness of God. I love the way Professor C.S. Lewis puts this. Um, If you don't know him, he's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'd encourage you to read as much C.S. Lewis as you can. He was an Oxford Don atheist who became a, a Christian. He wrote a book about that journey called Surprised by Hope. But he would say this. He said simply that, that there are no ordinary people because they're made in the image of God. There are no ordinary people and you have never talked to a mere mortal. Can you get your head around that? You've You've never actually talked to just a mere mortal. That's the first idea. The second belief is about the way that a believer becomes a Christian. Some might think, it's like me, it's like the same way that you become a a lawyer, a barrister, it's the same way you become a Christian. You've got to pass a whole load of exams, you've got to do some dining, sort of culturally acclimatize, become like them in order to fit in, all of that stuff. No, no, no. That's not the way that people become a Christian. There's no exam to be a good enough person That's not how it works. It's a gift of God. Paul puts it like this, that you've been saved by grace. God's goodness, what he's done for you, not works. So what? So no one can boast. It's a gift of God. Salvation simply comes through faith by saying, Jesus has done it all for me. I don't have to save myself because I know I couldn't save myself. Hallelujah. That means that no one in a church has the right to look down on anyone else. Because we're all saved the same way. No one's saved better than someone else or is more worthy of being saved than anyone else. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's crazy. Which means that we must be the most accepting community in the world. We're all sinners in need of forgiveness. We're all broken people in need of healing. And we know that. That's what unites us together. We're all saved the same way. And so this is what you have coming in the first century. It's what exploded and captivated the first century world was a new community unlike any other that the world had seen. Any other. And even a community where we don't judge anybody if their phone goes off in a service. I don't mind. It's okay. It happens to me sometimes. We'll just, we'll just have a laugh about it and move on. <laughs> Now, why am, I showing, why am I showing you all of this? Why am I talking about this? Well, two reasons. Number one, because this is the heart of this church, Westminster Chapel. This is our vision, and we want to be passionately encouraged to persevere. This is the kind of church we want to see coming to life here. A church of acceptance and a church of transformation. A church which is a place of hope and healing and hospitality. You might say it's like a field hospital in the heart of London. Our ministry to specialize in is ministry to brokenness because we know we're broken people. We're getting fixed up ourselves. Come and join us as we get healed through the person of Jesus Christ. I love the way Sam Albury talks about it. He uses Lord of the Rings, which is probably why I like it so much. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, but he would say that we've all been wounded on Weathertop. We've all been stabbed by the world and we need our Rivendale. Our place of elven mystery and beauty to heal up and find a sense of purpose that we might serve something greater than we can do just for ourselves. That's the first reason. The second reason for sharing all of this is is an invitation. 
to follow Jesus. Find acceptance. Find acceptance from the God who will love you. And find acceptance in his family who will love you as well. Don't, don't miss out. So how can I show this? How can I help us go back to the original blueprint? Well, let's travel back 3,000 years about that to 1 Samuel chapter 22. You heard it read brilliantly twice over. Um, just to get it into your kind of system, it's here on the screen. The context to this passage is that at this time, there is a man called Saul and he's king. And he's a self-absorbed individual. He's image-obsessed. He cares so much about what other people think about him. In a few chapters earlier, one chapter 15, he makes a statue of himself in his own honor. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? That's what, that's what he's like. He reminds me of many sort of self-absorbed politicians and some celebrity pastors who are more interested in their fame and renown and all of that stuff than actually about the purposes of God. Kings back then were meant to serve for righteousness and justice, but here is a king who's serving himself. His kingship is about self-fulfillment, self-preservation, self-protection, and people were suffering as a result of that. And God says, no, you will not do that in my name. So he raises up a, a shepherd boy, David, and he anoints him, gives him power and authority to take on the giant Goliath who he defeats and to be, have incredible influence in the courts of the king and, and, and fighting for God. And Saul becomes unbelievably jealous of David to the point where David has to run for his life. Otherwise, Saul will kill him. And here's where we find David. He's hiding out in a place called the Cave of Adullam. And this word Adullam in Hebrew, it means something like hiding place or Retreat or refuge. It's a field hospital. And very quickly you get a 3D community that's emerging. Do you notice that? Those in debt. Those in distress. Those who are discontented from living in the self-serving, selfish society that Saul is creating. Start to leave that world behind and come and gather. Even though it means gathering in a cave. In caves. They find a family where they didn't feel like they fitted before. And God is raising up a a new community. He's mobilizing them. So they find a sense of belonging and purpose. And very quickly you'll see the very next chapter, this community goes on to then carry out the purposes of God to, to fight evil and tyranny and oppression and injustice. They go and save an entire city in the very next chapter in Keilah. It's extraordinary. Here's a new community coming to form to say, God's saying, that one is failing. They're disobeying me. They're not doing what I originally asked them to do. I'm going to raise up another and I'm going to do it. I tell you what, with what the world might see as deadbeats and down and outs and dropouts to show my glory and power, to show you I'm a God of love. And in doing that, he's, he's trailering what's to come. But this David, he's, he's just a picture, he's just a shadow, he's just a type of the greater David. Jesus Christ is going to come, he's going to gather a like-minded community that's going to change the world. So we go from the cave of Adullam to then the cave of Christmas. Now, I'm taking a bit of theological license by calling it a cave. But I have some basis for doing that. It's probably not a stable, that sort of tradition that's grown up that's probably not accurate. It may well have been the sort of lower floor. A house was typically two stories and the animals would be on the lower floor and there would be no space in the guest room above so they probably could have slept that way. But one of the earliest pieces of evidence about where Jesus is born comes from a man called Justin Martyr. He was born in 100 AD. 
And he lived about 40 miles from Bethlehem. And he says that there was a certain cave that the people of the day would go to to worship as that was the place where Jesus was born. Really early evidence of a cave. But I don't really need that to make my point. It's just a nice connection. The cave of Adullam to the cave of Christmas. My main point is who were the people there? A young woman and a man. Highly unimpressive in society. Poor from a place called Nazareth that nobody had heard of, from the north, where they looked down on the the thickies from the north, the spiritual weaklings up there. But they're right center stage in God's purposes. I'm choosing you, is what God's saying. And then who's next? Shepherds. The stinky social outcasts, bottom rung of the ladder people last. Some people argue that these were ex-convicts, criminals, trying trying to make a go of it. They would be excluded from society. And then although it's sort of truncated because they arrive a lot later, but, but I think God wants us to see that all together in once in the story, we then get the wealthy people, the wise men, foreigners, pagan star worshippers, they come. And you can, you can bet they would have been looked down by the religious snobs in Jerusalem. Who are these guys? Foreigners, pagans. But God says, I want to build my new world with them. Because they're open. They're going to follow the signs. And they're going to worship me. The cave of Adullam. The cave of Christmas. The call of Christ. Jesus grows up. And who does he invite to be part of his key community that's going to transform the world? Again, unimpressive. Uneducated. Mostly individuals. Now, I like the way that this is imagined. Um, I don't know who originated this, but I'm, I'm borrowing it in this sermon. I'm not claiming credit for it. But they've imagined that Jesus has asked for help from the Jordan management consultants about picking the right people to be his disciples. They say this, Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alpheus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered high, a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your right-hand man. Sinister music playing. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. I think you get the point. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The weak things of the world to shame the strong. The main thing that I want you to go away with from this message is don't disqualify yourself.
Don't think that you will not be accepted by Jesus or by this church, by his church. Because that is the heart of God himself. Is that you would find a place in his person where you really, really belong. And you have an important role to play here. It's essential that every person owns that, believes that. Because it's true. You're needed. You're needed. We're building here again, I'll say it, a field hospital right in the heart of London. A Rivendale. A place of acceptance, a place of hope, a place of hospitality, a place of healing. That when people come to Westminster Chapel, they're like going through the wardrobe door into Narnia. And it feels unreal. Like, but it's more true than the world you've left behind. You become a king and a queen in this world. You're given an authority and a status. But they they were just kids. They didn't earn that. No, No, you didn't earn it either. But you get it all as you step through the wardrobe door. And that's the world we want to invite people into. It's a glorious glorious place how do we do that how do we do that well we offer acceptance and transformation we love people enough that though we welcome them we don't want them to just stay as they are I don't want to just stay as I am we all want us to, ourselves to love one another in to be all that God has called us to be four key words as I close of how we're going to do this number one is to gather to gather. The people who came out to, to David in that community, they made a move. They, they had to make a decision. Had to leave behind what was familiar and, and go to the cave. And I want to encourage you, maybe you're here. You need to make a move. You've got to gather. You've got to go to where God is. You've got to go to the people of God. You've got to leave some of that stuff behind. You've got to take a big step of commitment. Maybe that's faith. Maybe you're saying like, wow, there's more to the Christian faith than I thought was possible. And you want to just take a step to find out more. Maybe it's a step to actually believe and say, I know enough. I'm going to trust Jesus today. Maybe it's a step to be baptized like these folks were. Maybe it's a step to join a life group. Maybe it's a step to serve, to give and so on in our church, to do the membership course, become a committed all-in person in our church family. Do you need to gather or regather again? Not to us I'm not saying I'm the David. We're regathering around Jesus, the greater David. That's who we gather to in this place. The first word is gather. The second word is welcome. It's welcome. We want to be the most welcoming place in London. Could you help us with that? Have you got any ideas about how we could, how we could do that? Could we do it better? How could we create the atmosphere of heaven in this place? We could do with a lot more hosts on a Sunday, I can tell you that. We could do with some help with hospitality. When our building reopens, we'd love to get our lunches going again where we have real community and fellowship. We've got a coffee shop that's going to hopefully open towards the end of November. We need a coffee manager, coffee shop manager. We need some baristas for that, some welcoming people for that. Um, Could you be a part of that? Could you be a part of your life group? We're in this belong season at the moment. Could you be vulnerable? Could you be open? Could you be real? Could you be encouraging? Could you help create a safe place where other people safe, feel safe so they can take the mask off and be who they really are? The third word, so we've done gather, we've done welcome. The third word is believe. Believe. 
They became a community of 500, sorry, 400 people. 400 people. That's a good goal for us to think about as a church. Not because, oh, wouldn't it be great if we were 400? Oh, we'd be cool then and really impressive. No, because we want to care for every single person. It helps us to think every person matters, made in the image of God, loved by God. We don't want anybody to slip through the net. We don't want anybody to miss out. Could you believe for that with us? God cares about people, so he wants his church to grow. The final word is pray. It's pray. And it comes out of a really interesting line that David says in verse 3. Till I know what God will do for me. Till I know what God will do for me. That his heart is just to wait prayerfully on the Lord. Hear from God. Believe in that God will speak. God will guide him. That he's not about doing things by human might and human power but by the Spirit, trusting the Lord, knowing that he will guide every step. That is the call for us as a church, to be a people who follow his voice, corporately listen together, hear, sense him speaking through the scriptures, sense him speaking in other ways prophetically to us, weighing that and being obedient, saying, yes, this is the Lord, we trust him. A people who wait on the Lord and in waiting on the Lord, find their strength renewed, find a power coming that is not of this world that can help us meet all the challenges and difficulties that this world will throw at us. And that's where I want to finish. Just take a moment as the band come up to pray, to wait upon the Lord. How is he stirring you to respond? Which of those four words struck a chord with you? Could you find acceptance today in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you need to draw closer to the church to be part of the real family here? Is it that you've not been baptized yet and that's your next step? But what is it for you? are just going to take a moment. We're just going to pause. We're just going to be quiet. We're going to be still. So however you do that, if this is new to you, just, just, just watch. But for the rest of us, you might want to close your eyes. You might want to put your hands up. And I'm going to pray. We're just going to welcome again the presence of the Lord. all of the mess that we make, the wrong decisions that we've done in our lives, Lord, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, we are accepted. And as we bow to you, as we trust you, as we surrender to you, as we own our wrongness, you take it all away from us and you accept us and you lavish your love upon us. And you say we're your beloved children, that you will never let us go, that nothing can separate us from your love, that we are secure forever, beloved and held. And Lord, we're asking by the Spirit, as we take a moment just to wait on you, 
that you'd make that real to each one of us, first and foremost, that we are accepted by God. Where the world has made us feel rejected, where we have believed lies that have made us feel inferior and rubbish and inadequate, Lord, we pray right now that the spirit of truth would cut through them, remove those evil chains that bind us, and that we would know we are yours, we are loved, we are safe, we are secure, we are accepted. And then, Lord, we ask for forgiveness where we have made church about us, where we have judged people unfairly, harshly, looked down on people when we shouldn't have. And Lord, we pray for your eyes to see people as you see them, to love people as image bearers and as brothers and sisters in Christ of those who have trusted in you. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and anoint us and empower us to build a church that can minister powerfully to brokenness in our generation and in this city to be a place of real hope, of real healing. Come, Spirit of God, build your church, we pray, for your glory, for your namesake that many, many would turn to adore the God who is love. Amen. Let's stand, let's respond, let's worship. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.